Good evening, church. I had to practice that it was evening. Yeah. Thank you, Troy. Appreciate it, buddy. This evening, we are here to celebrate our Good Friday service. And as we think through the implications for why this day is good, I wanted to read for you one of the gospel crucifixion accounts. And in so doing, I just want to bring out three theological implications from the text that will certainly be not new to you. But my prayer is that you would ponder it anew. And as you prepare your hearts for this upcoming Lord's Day, that you would meditate on these three things as we wait for our King to rise. So if you would pray with me before we get started this evening. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would impress upon our hearts the importance of Christ. We pray that you would impress upon our hearts the weight of the cross and that you would press upon our hearts our desperate need for Christ this evening. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. If you will open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. We'll be reading verses 21 through 39, but this will just be kind of a springboard for us tonight. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 21. This being an account of Christ on his way to his crucifixion. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross, his being Christ. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And, some, and, someone ran to, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Hear the words of God. 
as we come to this scripture tonight and as we come to Good Friday, I want you to think about why it's good and I want to give you three ways to think of this. The first way is going to be the crucifixion was the will of God. Something that sometimes we can can brush over just because of the cruelness of the cross and how sinners were the ones that were getting Jesus to be placed on this cross for something he never did. It was still the will of God for this to happen. In fact, we see as we get to this point, this would have been last night, if you're following along this week and and the holy days of this week, that Jesus actually prays this prayer. In Mark chapter 14, when Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Christ actually says this two different times. This same prayer calling for God's will to be done. Christ's soul was sorrowful even to death because of the task that was laid before him to be accomplished. This task that was given to him by his father. But we have to understand why was it the will of God? And as I said, this was going to be kind of our our launching place tonight in Mark 15, but we're going to jump around. So we got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. We've got to go back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and through 17. And in Genesis chapter 2, we have seen the creation account, and now we see God giving a task to Adam. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. We see from the very beginning that God had given Adam a task. Adam was supposed to work and keep the garden And in so doing, he was promised life. But we see that if Adam would eat of that only tree he was told not to eat of, the curse that was given to him was death. And as you all well know, in Genesis 3, we see what happens. Verses 1 through 7, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of any fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. We see that man sins by eating the fruit And in so doing, sin has now been brought into the world. 
But then we get this beautiful rendition of the gospel here in Genesis chapter 3. We read Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. This is God bringing the curses down. He says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And there it is. There is the beautiful promise. This is where we get our first hint of the will of God in the crucifixion. We see it right here in this promise. The proto-euangelion, which means the first gospel. We see it here. We see God giving us the first gospel, that this heir coming from the woman, his heel shall be bruised by the snake, but praise be to God, Christ shall crush his head. And that is what we see as the will of God and why he would put Christ on the cross. But it gets worse. It usually has to get worse before it gets better. And so we can go to familiar verses in the New Testament like Romans chapter 3. I'm sure some of you here probably have this memorized and you don't even have to turn. But in Romans 3.23, we read this verse, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But even in that, we can go to Romans chapter 5 and just see the, the horrible implications of this sin. Not just our sin, but the sin that we inherit, inherit from Adam. In verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see the logic happening here. Adam sinned, and because Adam sinned, what was the curse? We just read it, right? He would die. The curse of sin is death. And so we see that through Adam, sin comes in, death is introduced. And through Adam, we all inherit that sin. But then Romans 3 tells us it's not just that we inherit it and then we're just good people, but we're all sinners. And we all fall short of the glory of God. So that's why it is the will of God that the crucifixion would happen. Another interesting verse to jump to is Acts chapter 2. We see this sermon that Peter is giving. And in verse 22, we hear this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Hear that again the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This wasn't God's plan B. It wasn't like, oh no, things didn't work out, so I'm gonna have to send Christ. No, this was the plan from all of eternity. This was the plan that was worked out between father and son, that the son would come to die for a people. 
because there was sin. And so we see God's perfect. We see this this foreknowledge of God. It wasn't that something happened and God needed to learn something and his knowledge needed to be changed so he could make a better plan. No, his perfect foreknowledge and this definite plan, his unchanging definite plan was to send Christ to die for sin. Because according to Hebrews 9, verse 22, there can be no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of of blood. And so it was the will of God that Christ would come to shed his blood on the cross for sinners. So number 1, your first point is that the crucifixion was the will of God. It wasn't a changing will, it was the will that was always there, the will of God. Number 2, The will of God came at a great cost. Pastor Phil or Elder Phil or however they want to be referred to as our elders here. They're also pastors. We can use that word interchangeably no matter how uncomfortable it makes them. He read for us Isaiah 53. Those are such beautiful words and they're such tragic words. That Christ was stricken, smitten, Afflicted, crushed for our iniquities. Crushed. The weight of sin crushed Christ on the cross. If this wasn't bad enough, we read in Mark's account of the gospel in in chapter 15 what happened when the Roman soldiers got a hold of him. We all know these stories, right? They spit on him. They mocked him. They jeered at him. The king of the universe. They bowed down in mockery of of God of the universe. They mocked him. And all of this he humbly undertook as the cost for our sin. At the cost for your sin. We read in Hebrews that he was made like us in every respect so that he might become a faithful high priest. And a part of this was that he had flesh like you and me. Right? We read that in Hebrews chapter 9. He had flesh like you and me. What What does this mean? What does this mean when we think through that he had flesh? Well, He had flesh like you and me, and you and me understand that our flesh is, well, weak, corrupted, sensitive. Our flesh is sensitive. So, kiddos, when your parents tickle you under your feet, and you laugh, and you giggle, right, and it's sweet, and we love doing that, it's because your feet are sensitive. Your hands, when you touch something hot, whether on a pan or a pot or whatever it may be, washing your hands and the water's hot and you bring them back, it's because your flesh is sensitive. And it came at such a cost that the king of the universe had nails driven through those sensitive hands and those sensitive feet. He was crushed 
The nails were driven through his hands and they were placing him upon a crucifix made of wood. And as Jason read for us, every man who is hung on a tree is cursed. And that's because Christ took the curse for us. Christ was taking our curse of sin and death so we might be the righteousness of God. The will of God came at great cost physically for Christ. It also came at such a great cost spiritually for Christ. I read in the Arabic, which I butchered, but then we get the translation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know because we've been going through the Psalms that Christ is quoting Psalm 22, a, mess- a messianic Psalm, and Christ is saying, that's me, I'm the Messiah, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This might be one of the most mysterious lines written in all of Holy Scripture. Jesus, a member of the Holy Trinity, begotten of the Father, never created in time or space, eternally existent, cries to the Father, who he had the most sweetest, purest, holy relationship and communion with. He cries to him, why have you forsaken me? Christ does not somehow lose his substance of being one with the Trinity here. But there is a spiritual sense in which the Father allows the sweet communion to stop as a consequence of sin, as the wrath of God is poured out on Christ as the will of God. There's physical punishment here. There's spiritual consequence here. And as we have seen, his friends, if you'll remember, they have left him, they've deserted him, they've denied him. There are social consequences to sin, and there are theological consequences to sin. Christ is placed onto the cross as our substitute, as our substitutionary atonement. Oh, under this punishment, no mere man could stand. But Christ does. Christ takes it. And in so doing, he gives us his righteousness so that we may be the righteousness of God. So number one, remember, the cross, the crucifixion, is the will of God. Number two, we see that the will of God comes at such a great cost for Christ. And number three, we see that Christ has completed the will of God. Of God. We read in chapter 15, and then Christ uttered a loud cry and breathed his last breath. When we survey the other gospels, we read that Luke says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Matthew says, He yielded his spirit unto the Lord. But John gives us something special here. John helps us here, as we sang earlier. John records Christ stating, It is finished. It is finished. What a wonderful thing for us to hear tonight. Can you even wrap your mind around what Christ has just said? It is finished. 
The will of God has been completed in Christ, which was promised in Genesis 3.15, what we read. That crushing of the head of Satan has happened as he dies on the cross, taking the wrath of God and conquering sin and death. Christ has completed the will of God. Sometimes, and I think it's good, we leave a Good Friday service somber. We walk out with our heads low, thinking about the king of the universe who has been killed for our sin. But I think you need to remember that Christ says, it is finished. And we're not living in that time. We're living in this side of redemptive history. We know what happens on Sunday. We know what will happen. And we can celebrate the fact that it is finished. Praise be to God. The very next line of this helps us even more and brings the implications of this completion of the will of God so much more amazing. What Christ's death does for us. We read after he breathed his last breath and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The very act was so utterly amazing that the temple curtain would be torn in two, that it's hard to understand how more people didn't understand the significance of it. Friends, do you understand the tearing of the curtain? As the curtain in the temple would be dividing the Holy of Holies from the people. And as the curtain was torn that divided the people from the Holy of Holies in the temple... They are now face to face with God. There's no more need for an interary or an intercessory person on their behalf, an intermediary. That's what I was trying to say. We understand that this was the actual role of the high priest. Only the high priest could make that trek. He is the only one that could make atonement for the people of Israel. He would go into the Holy of Holies, and the curtain was torn. There was no longer a need for this high priest. Why? Because a better high priest had come. Not just a better one, the perfect high priest. Christ's death tore the curtain because there was no longer this need for a human priest. And friends, there was no longer a need for this sacrificial system for atonement. We no longer needed the blood of bulls and calves or calves and goats and doves and all of those things. We no longer needed that because the better high priest had come. A high priest who made a sacrifice not with goats or calves but with his own precious blood. Hereby abrogating, destroying the ceremonial law. Christ fulfilled the law in his sacrificial death. Let's just jump back to Hebrews one more time. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of blood, of goats and calves, but by 
means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Our sure and better Adam had come. Our better high priest had come. And he completed the work of God. And he did it at such a cost by being nailed to the cross. But now as we realize that Christ has done this amazing work, that the temple was torn, that there was no longer need for sacrifice, that there was no longer a need for the high priest because the, the perfect one had come to satisfy those two things. And even when we think about that, we no longer need somebody to go and atone for our sins. We no longer need somebody to pray on our behalf because our mediator sits at the right hand of God after completing his work and he makes intercession on our behalf. Oh, what a beautiful truth of Christ completing the work of God. And because Christ has completed the work of God, we can go back to those verses we read earlier. We can go back to Romans 3, 23. This verse that many of us have heard to remind us of our depravity and of our sinfulness. But the beauty happens after the comma. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, comma, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Oh, what a beautiful thing to read. Oh, what a beautiful promise to hold on to that it's by the blood of Christ. And then we can go to Romans 5, 15 through 17. Coming back from Romans 5, 12, we continue to Romans 5, 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And finally, we go back to the book of Acts. We go back to chapter 2. We go back to verses 22 and 23 
In verse 23 we read, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's just a taste of what we get to see this Sunday. That's just a taste of the reality of Christ's conquering death and raising as a king. So this evening, we have gone over just three things I want you to remember. That the crucifixion was the will of God. That the crucifixion came at a great cost of our Savior. And that Christ, our Savior, completed the work. So we've seen that the will of God was the cross of Christ, that it came at a great cost. Christ has finished the work. Christ, the man who never sinned, was treated like a sinner, took the wrath of God for sinners, died like a sinner, was treated like a sinner, and would rise a king. You, as you meditate on these things over the next couple of days and the longing for Resurrection Sunday, may we ponder anew what the Savior has done for you. This is the greatest news and makes for a good Friday for those that have placed their faith in Christ. This is the best Friday. But for those who are not in Christ, this is the most horrifying day for you. If you do not believe in Christ, then the wrath that, that Christ took on the cross for hours will be yours, not for hours, but for eternity. Put your faith in Christ, who came to complete the will of God, who suffered in your stead, and who accomplished the work of redemption on your behalf. Cry out to him to be your Savior, your Lord, your King, and follow him for the rest of your life. Let's pray. Oh God, you are so good that wretched, depraved sinners like us would have a Savior in Christ. That we could never, by our own hands, by our own work, even by our own faith, muster up what we need for salvation. But from before the foundations of the world, you had a plan that Christ would come and would ransom your people. That he would die and his blood would pay the ransom for us. That by the breaking of his body and by the pouring out of his blood that we would be forgiven our sins and they are many. God, we give you all the praise and glory and we pray all of this in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen.